Hey, now, say now, you're tuned into the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I am your host, Devon Pouncey. I am here in the beautiful city of Portland, Oregon, after living in Dream Studios. And today, we have a very, very special guest joining us all the way from New York. Um, she is a sports and culture writer at The Athletic. She also co-authors the hit book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. So some of you may remember us having her here on the podcast back in September. You also might have seen her on Real Sports with Brian Gumble on HBO recently. Kavitha Davidson, so glad to have you back. And thank you so much for your willingness to join me here again. <laughs> well, thank you so much for inviting me. And I can't believe that that was September. That's so freaking long ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was September. And later on in the episode, I asked you a little bit more about that because at the time, you know, the book had just released and, you know, you were just super busy. You and Jessica both were super busy doing a lot of press. And I kind of know, I kind of want to know where things stand now as the book has been out now for a little bit of time and just sort of where things stand now in regards to then. Um, because like I said, y'all were just busy. Y'all were all over the place doing a bunch of press. And I think now you probably had a little bit more time. Um, you were hosting the Athletics National Podcast. And since then, you've pivoted and you are now a sports and culture writer for The Athletic. Talk to us a little bit about what this new role means for you. And uh, are you in, are you enjoying it, of course? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm loving it a lot, to be honest. And it was a really natural pivot because so much of my career has been writing about that intersection of sports and culture and race and gender and a lot of business. You know, I started my career at Bloomberg and I'm a sports business reporter by trade. Um, but, you know, when we launched the culture vertical, it was done in basically what, what we saw in the last year of not having a, a true place for all of the, all of the, oh, I'm sorry, my phone just went off, but um, of all of the discussion about how athlete activism is working, how sports is is intersecting with the, with the pandemic, right? Like we saw so many things in the last year, George Floyd, um, the, the, the Bucks doing wildcat strikes that needed to live somewhere. And we didn't really have a section while we have incredible writers who covered that, who covered all of those things. Um, but we didn't really have a section for, for those stories to, to live. So the culture vertical was created and I'm extremely happy to be able to cover some of those things. And, you know, there's also some fun things that we've been able to cover as well. I wrote about Will Blackman, um, former NFL player, uh, who's now a level three certified, like he's, he's done, he's done level three sommelier certification. Oh, wow. um, and he's just like super into wine. Um, I wrote about a top chef contestant who was, um, who was an Olympian. Like, so there, there are just a lot of ways in which like sports, touch us, right? That sports can touch our lives and, and can reach us. And that's kind of what we're trying to do with this vertical. So I'm, I'm so happy. I'm so excited to be, to be writing for it. And we've got this incredible podcast where we've had some, we've had some pretty, from some pretty great guests. I mean, our first episode had Jesus and Marrow on it, you know? So. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a great guest. That's great guest for sure. I, I want you to dig a little bit deeper into the word culture though, because um, even this podcast that I host, it's, it's, you know, it's a objective is to focus on the intersection of sports, politics, and culture. Obviously, you all have launched a culture vertical over at The Athletic, and you're now a sport and culture writer. Um, but the word culture has sort of become a buzzword as of mm -hmm. late. And so for you, obviously, based on what your job title is, but also just your style of writing in general, what does that word culture mean in regards to the work that Kavitha Davidson is doing? I mean, for me, it means everything that we encounter in daily life um, that has some kind of entertainment bent, right? So, you know, fashion, music, politics can be culture, right? Our political culture is all kinds of problems. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> For sure though. But it's, but it's super pervasive and also touches us and, and intersects with sports in so many ways. Um, 
you know, television, movies, uh, you know, all of these, all of these other industries that exist in a way that sports can exist in as well. Um, you know, that's where I'm seeing culture, culture coming from. And yes, like there is obviously like, listen, I'm, I'm an Indian American woman. Um, you know, there are, there are racial elements to a lot of the things that I write about. And I'm trying to represent a perspective that frankly just doesn't go represented a lot in sports media. So, you know, we're trying to write about things that you might be like, I mean, the whole, the athletics ethos is writing about things that you're not going to find anywhere else. Right. Yeah, and sure. it's, it's that, it's that, you know, the, the funny story about a, a, a player's pregame ritual or something like that, but it can also be, um, you know, this is this is the racial implication of this or this is how a certain like demographic is is thinking about this issue that we are all talking about in sports and maybe mains maybe the rest of mainstream media isn't necessarily talking about it in the same way so that's that excuse me that's that's really what we're trying to do absolutely do, do you feel like you've had sort of a rebrand since writing your book loving sports when they don't love you back because Obviously, you've alluded to, you know, the work that you do at The Athletic and the work you've done in the past with Bloomberg, so on and so forth. Um, but after writing a book, like writing a book has to be a significant part of your career. And I'm sure it made you think about so many things. And did that sort of assist you in making this pivot or encourage you in making this pivot? You know, it's an interesting question. I don't know if I would necessarily put it that way, because okay. I always like throughout throughout the last year, the last two years, I've I've always felt connected to the book and to the kind of things that we've written about in the book, which, you know, the book is very much about the intersection of sports and culture, right? Absolutely. It's a, it's a book on the ethical dilemmas and the, and the nature of fandom and fan culture in itself is its own culture. Right. Um, but, you know, to be, to be perfectly honest, I, you know, when I hosted the lead and I was incredibly proud of the work that we did there and we won a webby and we've won an, another award that will be announced soon uh oh uh oh <laughs> <laughs> but um but you know when i was doing that so much of the episodes that mattered the most were about the intersection of sports and culture it was about mo gabba it was about um you know larry nasser and 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 sexual assault victims and it was it was it it's it's always about what happens beyond what happens on the court or on the field and so in doing that, I mean, to be honest, I just, I just missed writing. Like I missed yeah. the act of, you know, I'm a writer Absolutely. and, and everyone has been so kind and told me that I was a very good podcast host and I, you know, I still host a podcast, but it, it just, it didn't feel like that's who I am. I can do that. And I enjoy doing that, but I am a writer, you know what I mean? And I wanted, you know, I, I having the opportunity to explore some of these issues in a, in a much more, more deep way, um, is, is, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky to, to have that, but at the same time, having the book was my outlet for that side of me and that side of my personality and that side of my professional life. Right. Um, but I missed the writing. So yeah, now, yeah, I, now yeah. I get to come back and do that. You're back home. You're back home. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's transition here and talk a little bit of hoops because you just went to a thriller of a game a few days ago, a couple of days ago now, um, as uh, there were a lot of F Trey Young chants going on in uh -huh. Madison Square Garden. Uh, first there of all, there was an FL Tuve chant as well. New Yorkers oh. ain't letting that go at all. <laughs> Absolutely. But but just talk about that. What was it like to have NBA playoff basketball back at Madison Square Garden after such a long time and you being able to be there just to kind of take it all in, not just in the sense of, you know, the Knicks being able to return back to the NBA playoffs, but mm -hmm. just being able to return back to being a fan of sports and being at a live event in general. How did that all tie in to your experience? Yeah, you know, I, I wrote about that this morning. Um, I have a column about what it was like to return to Madison Square Garden. And I am I'm lucky to say that it wasn't my first sport, my first sporting event. I went to opening day at Yankee Stadium. You know, I've, I've done a couple of baseball games so far outdoors and just bigger, or bigger stadium and more yeah. spacing and all of that. And obviously the restrictions and the, the rules have changed since um, since baseball kicked off. But there was this electricity that you you can't really imagine. And I I am very much a New York 
city Homer, not necessarily for the teams, um, even though my teams mean so much to me, but like about the city itself. And I think what it meant for New Yorkers to be able to walk into the garden for playoff basketball, for looking towards something that had a future potentially, um, meant so much after the last year. And, and, you know, when I wrote this column, um, I thought very hard about what it looked like for New Yorkers at this time last year. And it very much felt like we were on an Island and I wasn't in New York um, at the time I was, I was stuck in LA and, but I had these biweekly zooms with, with all of my friends here and my nurse, my cousin is a nurse. You know, I have so many friends who are frontline workers and the way that they talked about what the city felt like when the pandemic was first hitting and it wasn't hitting the rest of the country in the same way. So it felt like New Yorker, it felt like we were alone in this fight and that we were also kind of being blamed for it. So many people said, well, you choose to live on top of each other and you choose to, you know, yeah. have, you know, like the, the restaurant and service industry is so important to you and that kind of thing. And yeah, it is, but like nobody deserves to go through what everybody went through in the last year. So to have that, it was, it was relief. It was hope. Um, you know, I, I was standing outside waiting for, for the friend that I was taking to meet me and so many people were just joyous and you hadn't seen that kind of joy in that kind of concentration in a city as dense as New York in a really, really long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was beautiful. And a guy, a guy turned to me, a stranger. And this is the other thing is that New Yorkers are the best about, like, like stranger interaction, you know, like, you know, like, well, we'll we'll be walking down the street. If two of you are wearing a Yankees hat, there'll be that nod. And maybe like, you'll, you'll, you'll have a a little like verbal exchange or whatever, like that kind of thing. So a guy turned to me and he literally said, man, it's electric. The city is electric tonight. Yes. So much different than a year ago, like much better than a year ago. And that really stuck with me because that's really what what Sunday night was all about, even though the Knicks lost and it was heartbreaking and there was no stopping Trey young. And I don't know what, like Julius Randall was playing nervous very clearly. Yeah. And there's a lot that we can talk about there, but and we will, then we will, <laughs> but there was, there was, there was just, oh, there was the sense that, you know, we had paid our dues to get to this point that we earned, we earned this playoff game in so many ways. Knicks fans have earned every playoff game they'll yeah, ever get. So absolutely. Like that's absolutely the fact. <laughs> For um, sure. But, but New Yorkers like this, this meant so much to the city. It continues to mean so much to the city. And I'm, I'm nervous and I'm excited for Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Beyond just that game, obviously, New York has two teams uh, that are in the playoffs right now, obviously, in the Knicks and, and the Brooklyn Nets as well. And then you got the New York Liberty on the women's side who are doing their thing so far early on in the season. I mean, Sabrina's Five and back. one, baby. It's Five okay. and one. Sabrina's <laughs> back. You know, she, she's balling out. Obviously, Sabrina's she got out with a vengeance. With a vengeance. She got hurt early on in the Wubble. <laughs> and obviously, you know, I'm from the Bay Area, first of all, but I, I, I live here in Oregon. So my connection to Sabrina, just as a fan from from us being from the same region and then also, you know, the time we both have spent going to college here in Oregon, I'll always root for Sabrina to do her thing. But just talk about what the culture of basketball is like right now in comparison to the years past, because I don't know if the city has had this much success across the board in this in that sport, obviously, in quite some time. Well, you know, that's exactly right. And, you know, I think that we as human beings, we tend to be um connected to our own sense of nostalgia. So as a kid who grew up in the mid to late nineties in New York, like basketball, obviously like the Yankees went on this like crazy dynasty run, but basketball is kind of King. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And we know that here on the West coast, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, just culturally for what it means to us, for what it means to New Yorkers. And there's absolutely a racial element there. Also, I think it probably depends on which neighborhood you grew up in, whether you care more about basketball or baseball, baseball, I will say is my favorite sport, but it is just different in New York when the basketball is hopping. And I guess I got to lend some credence to these Brooklyn Nets. So fine. <laughs> so we know where we know where you stand as a New Yorker. <laughs> I listen, I'm extremely happy for I mean it's it's actually it's extremely it's very good for the league, it's very good for the city to have two teams that are playing well. Um what the Nets have been able to do in the last couple of years has been incredible. I will forever be a fan of Steve Nash. Like so yeah. 
So, you know, like I actually don't have, my problem is ain't no Brooklyn Nets fan who can claim that they were a Nets fan before. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of transplants and there's a lot of bandwagonry happening right now. It happens. That's okay. That is, I I think that that's fine. Like New York is inherently a transient city. We are a city of, of transplants. So, uh, you know, like adopt, adopt that team. But anybody who claims that they were watching Carrie Kittles in New Jersey is absolutely lying. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel that. I feel that. But back to game one, um, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, the tale of the two stars, Trey Young just <laughs> did what he does. He balled out, obviously hitting the game winner there at the end of the game. And Julius Randle didn't have the greatest outing. It being his first playoff game of his career. You, you sort of expect that to an extent. Um, but what are your thoughts on the remainder of this series? Do you think that the Knicks got a chance to pull it out? Do you think it's going to come down to who plays better when it comes to the best player of each team? Because I even look at this Portland and Denver series, obviously me being based here in Portland. Mm -hmm. And to me, that series is one of those series that's ultimately going to come down to who's better, Damian Lillard or Nikola Jokic. Well, yesterday Um, it was about Jokic, right? Like completely. For sure. For sure. You know, yeah. Definitely. And that's the thing is that Trey Young is the kind of talent that can absolutely single-handedly overtake a game. Um, the frustration of what happened on the court on Sunday started with just shooting. The Knicks did not shoot well right out the gate. And you could tell that that was a lot of playoff nerves, right? I think they were shooting. I remember looking up and and their, their field goal percentage was in the 30s for the first quarter. Now it ended up being in the 40s. Like they very much made up for it. Um, but Julius Randle, you could see like he was hesitating with all of his shots. Mm. And you could tell that there was just a nervousness and especially that outside shot. And at some point you just got to take that shot gotta right? let it fly right exactly um the defense also and for a tom thibodeau led team to allow the lane to be as wide open as it was at times was incredibly frustrating and surprising to see um there are a lot of questions about you know who he's putting on trey in that last sequence with you know right right before he hits that shot with 0.9 seconds left um I have some issues with some of the officiating. There were a couple of fouls that like you saw the replay and the ball was 17 inches out of, out of a dude's hand and they're still calling contact. So I don't, yeah. you know, there, there, there's some issues there, but the Knicks really did this to themselves, but you saw flashes of brilliance, man, in that, in that second quarter, like to, to bring it to two with uh, before the half. And then you saw, you saw exactly what this Knicks team could do. Um, and I feel like my complaint as a Knicks fan, it will always be based on rebounding as well. Um, there were no offensive boards until that third quarter for the most part. So, um, you know, if you're going to miss that many shots, you've got to, you've got to get your second and third chances. Um, I do have hope. I think that they'll come out with a vengeance tomorrow. Um, I'm, I'm nervous about Atlanta, to be honest. I'm nervous yeah. about going to Atlanta because I yeah. think that the energy of that building, if the energy of Madison square garden can't push you this far over that hump, then that's just not going to happen down South. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to see how the remainder of that series plays out. Cause you know, it's the tale of two young teams, two of the younger teams here in the playoffs. And it's actually been a little bit refreshing just to see sort of the newness of these young budding stars mm-hmm. here in the playoffs, obviously Trey Young and Randall. Um, you look at what John Morant and those boys are doing o- over there For with sure. Memphis. Um, Donches, you know, sometimes we forget how young Luca Donches actually is Luka, because he's I mean, so Luka, damn because good. Luka's, he's so damn good and he's also just been a professional since he was seven years old. You know right. what I mean? Like, <laughs> Exactly. So it's like for me, just seeing sort of it's almost like watching a transition of, you know, the stars of I don't want to say stars of old because they're still stars, but more of the veteran savvy stars and the veteran superstars that we've gotten accustomed to, you know, over this generation of basketball players. And now just sort of seeing this new generation like challenged the throne in a sense Devin Booker's another one making mm-hmm. his first playoff appearance so and, glad right yeah yeah absolutely I've been saying that Devin Booker was going to go to the playoffs since he's entered the league and to see it finally happen mm-hmm. it's so refreshing to me because I could finally say that I was right but, <laughs> <laughs> but but it's just interesting seeing the dynamics of these young guys really stepping up and, and really giving us some very entertaining basketball over the first few days of these playoffs for sure. It's, it's been a, it's been a great start to this postseason. Um, 
you know, I, I think that, I mean, surprises are always a good thing, but after the last year, you never know like what you need out of a surprise, especially in a sporting season. Right. Um, it, but it feels, it just, it feels more normal, which is yeah. like, I don't know how to say it any way other than that. And I will continue to say that, like, you know, the, the bubble last year was this incredible accomplishment. And frankly, I was very skeptical, <laughs> very skeptical. Um, and you know, we can also like have a whole conversation about whether it was ethical or whatever, but they pulled it off. Yeah. They very much pulled it off. And now, and now they're pulling off the, the follow-up to that. Right. And they're like, and, and the NBA is seeing incredible basketball being played with that, with that as the backdrop and with the last year as a backdop. And it's just, I mean, like we all, like I, I you know, I, I led the show by saying New Yorkers deserve this. We all deserve this to an extent. I agree. I agree. 100%. Um, who do you got winning the title this year? I know you don't want to say Brooklyn cause that's who I got. You know, I don't want to say Brooklyn. I think Brooklyn has an incredible shot. I think it's 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 always hard. It's always hard to choose an East Coast team, even though I'm an East Coaster. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. But we saw we've just seen holes in the Lakers. And, and I agree. You know, going into the season, going into the like maybe a month before the postseason, I think everyone probably would have said the Lakers, right? Um Brooklyn, Brooklyn is so stacked, and Brooklyn can attack you from all ends of the court, which is really where it comes down to. Can we talk about what the Milwaukee Bucks did last night, though? Man, talk <laughs> about a statement. And, and I lo- like my, my favorite player in the in the league might be Jimmy Butler, but like, man, what like 10 threes in that first quarter? I, I wasn't I wasn't at home at the time, and I was, but I was with a friend of mine who is a Bucks fan. She's from Milwaukee, and she got the alert, and she was like, "Kavita, what am I what am I looking at right now? It is it 63 was, to 32. What are you looking? An absolute <laughs> ass whooping. And, and, and I feel like the Bucks are more. Comp- complete than we've seen in this Giannis era. Um, you know, the Bucks are finally where they, they should have been in the last couple of years, right? Like sure. it feels like it's coming together at the right time. A- absolutely. So yeah, I agree with you. I, you know, like I said, I, I favor Brooklyn when it comes to like my prediction of who's going to win it all. But at the same time, this feels like the most wide open year mm-hmm. in a really long time in regards to who we will or even expect to see in the NBA finals and ultimately taking home that trophy, because I really don't know. Like, I don't know that the teams that we expect Brooklyn still, like I said, they, they haven't played together enough for me to, to know if they'll be able to endure the, the entire postseason. We know the talents there, the Lakers, as you mentioned, I just don't think they're as complete of a team as they were in the bubble last year. Obviously injuries have plagued them as well. We've talked I mean, about the, the young stars. Like- yeah, go ahead. Like when are when are the Sixers actually going to like get all when when is everything going to come together for the Sixers, right? Because they have been right there. They should have been right there every single year and they should be, you know, they should be in this conversation obviously, but at some point you're just like, well, how does how does Ben Simmons actually play with Joel Embiid, right? <laughs> yeah, but but I think the key and we saw it and we saw it in game 1 of their series. I think the key is for them obviously having Doc Rivers over there yeah. rather than Brett Brown who I thought yeah. was a terrible coach. Um and Tobias Harris, like I remember when Tobias was on the Clippers mm-hmm. like he was a baller and I think that in part had to do with him playing for Doc Rivers over there. Now having Doc Rivers as his coach here in Philadelphia, we saw what he can do in game one. Can he be consistent enough to keep up that high of a level of production throughout the playoffs? We'll see. But I think having Doc Rivers by his side, sure, uh, surely enhances those chances for him to like be a stud throughout the remainder of this postseason. So it's just so much (laughs) all over the place that we just really don't know. Well, and we've got a gigantic field, obviously. So. Yeah, a huge field, a huge field. But I like it. I like it. Um, let's transition a little bit because CC Sabathia recently like went off on Tony Larusa. I know baseball is your sport. You recently wrote a piece about this whole Tony Larusa incident. Um, I, I love CC Sabathia because again, another hometown guy. He and I grew up raised in the same city. We got some Alejo, right? Alejo, talk about it. Talk <laughs> about it. Yes, yes. But um, talk to us more about that piece that you wrote and sort of these unwritten rules from Tony Larusa and just how out of touch with the sport of baseball he is. Yeah, you know, and I, I will, I will, I will preface this by saying that I didn't write that meaning to be a targeted shot at Tony La Russa. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just low hanging fruit to be honest, but um, 
you know, I, I've been, we've, I feel like we have conversations among ourselves all the time about how the conversation about the unwritten rules in baseball always seems to have something to do with race. It's always a particular player who was being accused of quote unquote, not playing the game the right way. Um, and a few years ago, Ian Kinsler literally said the quiet part out loud when he said, you know, I hope that these kids from Puerto Rico and, and the Dominican Republic see how we play the game and we weren't raised that way. So that always, that always exists in the back of my mind. And again, I think that we have these conversations, but I hadn't seen a lot of coverage about how the unwritten rules enforcement and, um, you know, just the ideas about playing the game and sportsmanship, playing the game the right way tend to have something to do with race. So, you know, Tony LaRussa, I think a lot of us were nervous when he got hired that there was like, he's leading an, an extremely exciting young team. They're going to run away with their division um, in the White Sox. And they're led by Tim Anderson, who is a very good, very exciting electric outspoken black player um, in a league that, you know, we can count on our hand how many black players we've gotten in MLB. But um, I think a lot of people were nervous when Tony LaRusso was hired because he hadn't been in the game for so long. He also just had a DUI. Like it, it, it just, it felt like Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox, just kind of hiring his old buddies. Right. Um, and I think we're kind of seeing that play out with what's going on right now. The entire team is not behind what Tony LaRusa has been doing to your mean to, has, has been talking about um, your mean Mercedes, but that's just, that's, that's where that's going to come down. So, you know, I think that we just need to think about notions of sportsmanship and what it means when we say a, a guy isn't playing the game the, the right way, especially for a sport that frankly, you know, like I said, baseball is my favorite sport. I want it to succeed. I want it to have a future. And people within baseball are worried about that because of how old the fan base is. That's not to say that old fans don't matter, yeah. but you need you need a next generation of fan to come in. This is where the whole let the kids play thing um, started, that marketing campaign that MLB has. So, you know, to, to look at guys like your mean Mercedes hitting a home run in a 15 to four game, you know, off a position player, a first baseman who's, who's throwing you a four. 47 mile an hour EFIS pitch. Like, how are you not going to smack that ball across the center field? Fence? For you sure. I, mean? I would have smacked it across the center field. <laughs> for crying out loud. And it's fun. It is fun to watch home run. Like, listen, I, um, it is fun to watch no hitters. It is fun to watch home runs. And, and the more that we can encourage that, the more that we can have that kind of thing with players playing with actual joy and loving what they do and loving, you know, that trot around the base paths. Like that's how we're going to get kids into baseball and denying all of that with this like very kind of subtle racial tinge of, well, they weren't raised here. He's a Latino player. So he, he celebrates in a certain way that we don't think is proper. Like, come on, man. You know, and yeah. I feel the same way about touchdown celebrations. Like just let, let, let them do, let them do whatever sparks that joy, you know, because Absolutely. that's the whole point on our end, right? As fans, we want to see that happiness and that joy so we can experience that too. And, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to get out of the next generation of baseball fans. So this Unwritten rules thing. I'm so tired of this debate. The goalposts yeah. keep moving. The rules change. They're not written for a reason. Um, and let's just let's kind of get over it. And it also leads to actual danger. Like your mean Mercedes was thrown at behind his head um, by the twins in the next game. And Larusa basically said, "Well, I understand why they did that because wow. you know, he broke that rule, right? Um, that unwritten rule." And that's that's to me where like the actual danger lies. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's an old saying: "Turn with the times, or the times will turn mm -hmm. on you." And obviously baseball has been known as America's pastime, but I thought you made a great point in regards to, you know, baseball needs to reel in sort of these new generation fans. Um, what are some of the things that from your lens you see baseball can do and should do in order to be able to accomplish that? I think that they're, I think that they're doing a lot of it right now. Honestly, it's, it's embracing where the demographics are going, which, which, you know, is, is a way to say that, yes, like obviously every generation, you know, you have to 
cater to younger people. You have to also cater to what younger people like. And that means catering to what is becoming a at least half minority country, right? So we've, we've got to pay attention to the cultures and, and we can't just have country music at, at baseball games and, and, and everything like that. We've got to have a, a good mix of where people come from, of languages that are being spoken. It's been really nice to see commercials actually in Spanish. Um, and I don't speak Spanish, but I was raised in a very heavily Dominican neighborhood. And obviously like so many of our players are endemic Spanics are, 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 are native Spanish speakers. And, yeah. and, and so much of our country is too. And so to embrace that has been really great. We've been, I mean, these hype videos, I wrote a piece when the season started about these hype videos and like, like Lil Wayne and Nas did one and, you know, uh, Method Man did the Yankees one, which was cool. And like, it, like, it, like, so we're, we are finally getting to the point where it's like, okay, let's look at the cultures that are around us. Like the, like the, you know, small C cultures that, that we want to embrace, that we want to bring into this game and also recognize that, you know, we've got an entire basically continent of players um, that we should be able to bring fans in from too. Um, so I think that those are the kinds of things that that baseball is doing that they can do. They're also very much embracing um, and they need to do more of this and every league does, but they're very much embracing the, not just the woman fan, but the little girl fan. Like I, I I'm seeing these commercials with like dads and their daughters and that yeah. makes that like, warms my heart, you know, because like, absolutely, we should just be making this sport for everybody. And it's such an accessible sport. And it's such a beautiful, like, it's so, there is something beautiful about that pastoral nature of baseball, right? It doesn't have to be stuffy. Like, there is something to be said about nostalgia and tradition and history. And there is a value in that. But when you, when you pit that against modernity and progress, that's really where, that's where you get the reaction against it. So, you know, there, there are a few, there are a few ways that baseball can address this and I'm hopeful that they will. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, one of the things that I've always said is like, you know, you got the old seventh inning, take me out to the ball game situation. Like I want to see something a little bit more live and entertaining mm -hmm. than that, <laughs> to be quite honest, like a halftime show. You know what I mean? Like you think about halftime shows and how entertaining they are, even, you know, all the way up to the Super Bowl and how I will say it's hard to do that 162 times. You know what I mean? I, like, I agree. Yeah. I, I, I agree. <laughs> and, and it doesn't have to be that in particular, but I just want to see the creativity expand a little bit more in mm -hmm. regards to what those breaks look like in, in between, you know, games. Or, or during games, I should say. Um, well, I mean, it, it depends. It very much depends on like the ethos of the team, right? Like the Yankees are extremely corporate, very buttoned up, you know, sure. um, and, and, and that kind of thing. But if you go to like a Nats game and they have the president's race in between innings, right? Like yeah, 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 minor, yeah. minor league baseball is the most fun experience. Yes, it's, it is. I agree. It's very kitschy. It's very family oriented. There are all of these like kind of weird little traditions that you're like, well, that's quirky, but I, I'm about, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Definitely. No. And, and, you know, I'm just looking at what we're trying to do here, obviously, with the whole situation with the Oakland A's mm -hmm. um, looking into other markets. You know, you got this Portland Soon to be the Las Vegas A's or is that is that is that what you're thinking? <laughs> because because Portland's trying to make a push for it right now. Rest I'm, I'm mostly joking because I still I still can't believe that Vegas has been successful for hosting a sports team at all. But I'm like happy to be proven wrong. Um, man, I can't imagine the A's not being in Oakland, but that's, that's so sad, but Portland, yeah. listen, Portland deserves a baseball team for sure. I agree. I agree. You know, and, and obviously, like I said, you got Russell Wilson and Sierra that are sort of leading the charge with this mm -hmm. Portland diamond project ownership group. And I think Portland just deserves another major sports team, mm -hmm. whether it be baseball, whether it be football, I don't care what it is, but I don't think just basketball is enough. And I even look at the surrounding sports. Like we have, great MLS. We have great uh, women's soccer with the Timbers and the Thorns here. Um, you mentioned minor league, like the Hillsborough Hops get a lot of support mm -hmm. out here. Like this is a sports state, but there's just not enough sports to offer, in my opinion. Um, obviously, there's other politics that go into stadium building and bringing a team to the market as well. That is just an entirely different conversation. Well, but just, listen, we need we like the WNBA needs expansion like right now. Like the players that have we been would cut take that too. Last, like, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we would take that too, especially because 
you know, for what for what it's worth. I mean, and it's worth a lot. Women's basketball thrives here on a collegiate level. I mean, right. Oregon, University of Oregon and Oregon State have been well, very good. Sports in general, like Portland is very I, I, I actually I haven't done I haven't done a deep dive into why this is. But Portland is probably the one of the best women's sports cities, like it's the true. fans in Portland really respect these athletes and really go hard for these teams. Um, and, and that's, that's, that's been the case even before it was trendy. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah. The thorns again, as I already mentioned, they have loads of support here. So I just want to see something come here, you know, but, right. um, I also want to make sure that we do it in a way that's careful and, and that, enhances um you know some of the issues that we have in our community well yeah i mean in a like, positive light of course we can we can get into the the whole stadium subsidy thing and like the reason that the a's are, are leaving oakland is because oakland is doing the right thing and they've consistently put their foot down and said no like taxpayers are not paying for this um you know so uh we'll see we'll see where that goes the the main hope is that any kind of deal like that goes to a vote and it never does so yeah yeah true <laughs> that true that um i want to talk about your appearance on real sports with Bryant Gumble um you reported on the increase in mental health issues mm-hmm. uh when it comes to youth athletes and you correlated that to the pandemic of course where um there's been a drastic decrease in, in participation in sports because of the public health crisis that we've been in um just speak a little bit more to that appearance and a little bit more to what you reported on in regards to these mental health issues that young athletes are facing right now yeah i mean first of all it was just it was an incredible thrill um there were three shows that i grew up watching dreaming of being on and it was real sports with bryant gumble outside the lines with bob lee and um the sports reporters with john saunders and i got i've in my in my life i've gotten to be on two of those three shows so i, I you know i can kind of die happy now but, yeah 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 you're trending um, in the right direction <laughs> <laughs> but you know this this issue this piece was really interesting to me because i'm i'm hundred percent someone who was very and still kind of is like shut everything down we didn't know anything about this pan about this virus when it first happened it's not like sports are not worth it you know at some point when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people dying yeah. <laughs> um yeah. you know like that like the perspective of, of like where we're placing sports and the importance of things really came to a head during the pandemic right about where our priorities lie and and just how willing we are to sacrifice other people for our own comfort and that kind of thing but that being said like these kids very clearly suffered in a way that you can't deny and you can't turn away from. And, you know, since the piece aired, I've had countless parents send me messages that were like, you know, thank you so much. I didn't, I didn't even, I, you know, I didn't recognize that this was exactly what was happening in my kid or, or there were parents who were like, you know, thank you so much. My kid went through exactly this, which is, you know, sports can provide so many things, so many various parts of outlets to these kids. Um, and you're talking about kids, you know, before their, their brains are fully formed and before they go through, um, you know, their entire body development and, you know, puberty is hard as shit, like puberty yeah. is hard as it is. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and sports for so many kids and I didn't play sports really growing up. So it's, it's just interesting that, you know, I can appreciate this without having that firsthand perspective, but, um, you know, sports are, are, a mental health outlet. They're a physical outlet. They're all there and they all combine. And we talked to a psychiatrist, um, a a kid psychiatrist who basically said, when you took sports away from kids, you took away the entire country's antidepressant, Um, which was an interesting way to put that. Right. Very much so. And it was like the whole country's worth of kids were suddenly landed on, on, you know, on, on the IL, on the injured list. And they, you know, you, you suddenly had to, had to deal with, with what it meant not to have these outlets on top of everything else, on top of the uncertainty of what we were seeing. So, um, you know, it was, it was really meaningful for me to do, to do this piece because it is, it is so nuanced, right? Like, and, and I said this, you know, Bryant does these, um, these, these like 
crosstalks after after you do your actual piece um, where he asks you all the things that he's kind of thinking about. Yeah. And I said this to him, you know, you don't have to be a COVID denier or somebody who is anti-mask to recognize that these kids have gone through something here. And yes, we all have, but, um, you know, sports for these kids and, and these aren't kids who are playing at a particularly high level necessarily. Like one of the kids that, that I interviewed, he has very high level ADHD and just running around with a soccer ball helps him kind of concentrate all of the scattered thoughts that he's having um, into one focused place. And it really helped, it's helped alleviate his symptoms from ADHD. And and he's not going to be a professional soccer player. And that's not the point. But then when you took that away from him and he was home, it made everything worse. And he, and he was, he started drinking. He was 11 years old. He started drinking and, and he became suicidal and he had all kinds of dangerous thoughts. And thankfully he told his mom and, and he, she was able to get him counseling. Um, but you know, like that's just, that's just one example of what, of what kids everywhere have gone through where, you know, we, we absolutely over-prioritize sports in this country and we place way too important, too much importance on, on, you know, on what we're doing here. And at the end of the day, like it's, it's a game and it's supposed to be fun, you know, but at the same time, it really does mean so much to a lot of these kids, um, you know, at the level that you're talking about and taking that away showed this like very devastating effect and then bringing it back. Like one of the studies that we cited, um, basically said, you know, when you brought kids back to in-person learning, um, it didn't actually move the needle on improving the the depression rates or the self-reported depression rates. Yeah. But when you brought kids back to in-person learning plus gym, plus like after school sports, that's when it, it course corrected. And that was so fascinating to me. Like we have data showing us that kids are better off with their mental health when they are able to play sports. And that's just something that we can't deny. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's very interesting because I even think about some of the episodes we've done here recently, a couple months ago. Um, and this is obviously at the adult level. I had uh, Jason Verrett of the San Francisco 49ers on here, and mm -hmm. he was a finalist for Comeback Player of the Year last season. And we really dove deep into um, sort of the, the mental health trauma that he's going through after tearing an Achilles and tearing his ACL when he had what was what seemed to be a very prominent promising career. I mean, he's back playing and he's playing really well again right now, but we're talking about a guy who was a first round draft pick, um, who was a pro bowler in his second year of being in the league. And, and he had a pretty lucrative contract that he was looking forward to about a year or two after that, had he not gone through these injuries that he had, that he had to deal with. Um, and even Jules Boykoff last week, mm -hmm. we had him on here. And obviously we know how critical he is of the Olympic games. And he recently had this piece in the New York times, essentially demanding that the Olympics be can, uh, be canceled. But just thinking about it from an athlete's first perspective, what do we do and what does that mean? And how do we support athletes if indeed miraculously you know, Tomas Bach and the International Olympic Committee decided to listen to Jules and right. actually cancel the games. You know what I well, mean? Well, the State and, Department just said that, like, they they don't think that people should be traveling to Tokyo for the Olympics, which is for interesting. Sure. So. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just about everything points towards, you know, Jules being right in this instance. But in the case that it does happen, a lot of athletes would be affected. And, and Jules really talked about how the IOC should flush flush funds into, you know, mental health support mm -hmm. for these athletes. But these are grown adult athletes that we're talking about. When you go back to what you mentioned, these kids whose brains aren't fully developed, you know, who, who are so young dealing with puberty, as you mentioned. I'm 32 so years old and kids. I don't have any coping mechanisms. Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah for like, sure. How are you expecting an eight-year-old, right? Yeah, like, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And that's why it's like interesting to think about it from that lens, like, this has had to have more impact on youth. Plus it's, I mean, even though youth sports is becoming more of a business as things progress, mm -hmm. like there's not as much big money to be able to have alternative options as we've been able to see with the bubble or the wobble or just not having fans in the stands and so on and so forth. So 
I, I think that was very important for, for you to report on it and something that we really need to look at as a society, regardless, again, of what side of the fence you're on. Like you said, you don't have to be, you know, an anti-masker or, or any of those kind of things to really take a deep look into this and, and figure out well, how to at least acknowledge these. that this that this is a that this is a side effect. Right. Like yeah. we, there's so many like we 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 constantly talk about the unknown long term health consequences of covid. We don't know exactly what what 10, 15, 20 years down the line, this disease, if you had it, this virus, if you had it, is going to do to your heart or your lungs. One of those side effects is going to be mental health. And what was actually really encouraging in doing the research and doing and conducting, you know, the interviews for this piece was if you had that fear that the long-term mental health effects um, of, of the past year of the pandemic, of, of what we're still going through, frankly, um, will be, will be devastating. They're not irreversible. And we saw that, especially kids, we saw that snapback, like that, that study that I, that I mentioned about in-person learning plus sports activities, you know, that, that was such an encouraging thing to see that like, we, we absolutely need to continue to talk about this, but it doesn't have to be, this doesn't have to be permanent damage to these kids' mental health, which is really great. And then the other thing that I wanted to, to do that, one of the questions that I asked was why, why sports? Because like I grew up, you know, I played three instruments. I was a theater kid, all of that. That would have been my outlet. Right. And there are tons of kids who don't play sports, who lost who lost whatever extracurricular like sports act or whatever extracurricular school activity they're they you know they're used to doing and that's also their you know their way to socialize and their way to like meet you know meet up with their friends and and also just have something structured after school and all of that and it actually isn't different like those kids are suffering too the kids who aren't playing sports but we're doing other things with their time the thing about sports is that it's it's a it's a compact package one of the psychiatrists we talked to described it as you know, it's a, it's a one size fits all thing. So music, like you get this incredible artistic, creative, um, like you can feel it in your brain when you're playing, you know what I mean? And, and you get that same thing out of sports plus the physical aspect of it. And the physical aspect of it has so much to do with the mental health aspect of it too, that because it's a one size fits all, or it's, it's a, it's a, I'm not using the right term, but it's, it's like, it's all in one package, right? You've got all of these different aspects in it. So that's why it was slightly different for kids who play sports, but it is important to acknowledge that this is what kids across the country, whether they play sports or not are going through. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, sports are very inclusive on so many levels. Um, And obviously, you know, there are areas where sports, you know, has its downfalls, but generally speaking, like it's one of the more uniting industries in in regards to being able to bring, you know, cultures across difference to one place in one space, um, you know, to accomplish a goal, whether that just be having fun, whether that be getting some exercise, whether that be competing and trying to win a ball game or win a championship, whatever the case may be. So, I'm really glad that you were able to report on that and do that because it's something that I hadn't even thought of until obviously, you know, I I saw what you were able to do and report on there. And that's part of the reason why I'm glad we're able to have you here today. So great job, Kavitha. Great job. Thank you. (laughs) Um, For sure. (laughs) I want to follow up on, on what I mentioned earlier, though, in regards to the book, because, you know, last time we spoke, you know, things were quite hectic as the book had just been published. Um, now that things have kind of calmed down and settled down a bit, how has, you know, being an author of loving sports when they don't love you back affected and impacted you to this point? I mean, it's, you know, Jessica and I check in pretty regularly and I mean, I think that whatever, whatever I end up doing with the rest of my life, this will probably be the thing that I'm the proudest of is writing Mm. this book. Yeah. Um, and especially in the time, like we've done a lot of reflection, in interviews that we've done about what it was like to release a book in the middle of a pandemic. And the fact that so many of these issues that we talk about in the book were heightened by not having sports um, was very interesting to see. So, I mean, listen, like the New York times named it one of the best books to give in 2020. Um, You know, we've, we've had incredible critical, um, uh, reception to the book and, and it's been just kind of wild to see, but I think that just, you know, being able to, to get this done and, and put this out into the world. And it really has been 
a conversation starter, um, which has been really interesting and extremely satisfying to see. Um, so yeah, I mean, the audiobook came out recently and we're, we're talking about maybe doing a podcast around it. Like there's, there's some, there's some things that, that can come, but you know, there is, there is, I'm, I'm looking at it right now is literally yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, on my for bookshelf. Sure. For sure. <laughs> Definitely. I, I mean, like, I, I'm still so proud just to have my little few words in the book. I, I, I can't, I can't, like I've never been published in a book before. So that was a huge moment for me. Which well, we no, and we were, we were September. so like, listen, we were so, we were so happy to have, to have you in there and to have your insights and your voice in there. And, and that was the other thing is that, you know, what we really wanted to do was write a book that hadn't been written before for people who are not catered to like, you know, like that was the whole, the whole impetus of the book was that we just kept seeing sports media, write things for people who didn't look or think like us. And we were like, but there's so many more of us than, yeah. than we ever get credit for. So, you know, that's what we just wanted people to feel seen. And we hope that they, that they do with this book. Absolutely. Do you feel like now, you know, when you reflect on and think back to the stresses of releasing a book, when the world was shut down, essentially <laughs> during a pandemic, do you think you were better off publishing this book during a pandemic rather than, you know, pre pandemic times? You know, I don't, I don't know. I honestly don't know the answer to that question because on the one hand, you know, like I said, I think not having sports really did bring so many of these issues to light. And I don't want to, I don't want to talk about George Floyd being murdered in ways that it benefited me. But I do think that all of the activism that we saw after that and everything that we saw with Black Lives Matter happen after George Floyd was murdered yeah. um, really, really did help bring a lot of the things that we talked about in the book to the forefront. And I don't think that you have the Washington football team changing their name without the Black Lives Matter activism that happened after George Floyd um, forcing that hand essentially. And that was a whole chapter in the book. Right. So, yeah. so on the one hand, I, I think the pandemic oddly was a, 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 ben, a, a, a beneficial time for the book to come out, given what we were talking about. On the other hand, you know, like <laughs> we had no idea what anything was going to look like when the, yeah. when, you know, the book, the book goes to print in March. Like literally it was like the week after Rudy Gobert tested positive. And when we had this like freak out moment where we were like, what do we do? Yeah. Are there going to be sports in <laughs> September? Yeah. Is this ethical? Do people care? People are dying. And why, why would they want to read about sports? Right. Um, and then there's also just like the very like logistical stuff about like, we couldn't do any in-person book events and we couldn't do, um, you know, any of the book festivals that we would like to do. You, right. um, and, and that kind of thing. So I don't, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Definitely. And you mentioned George Floyd and coincidentally, we're, we're recording this podcast here today, which marks the one year date uh, of the brutal murder of George mm -hmm. Floyd. So, so I definitely think that's something that we must acknowledge there um, because it's just been such a pivotal moment in our society. For sure. Um, I can't remember who it was who said it to his daughter, but they said, your daddy changed the world. And, yeah. you know, you Stephen Jackson. That, Stephen it was Stephen Jackson. Jackson. Yeah. Yep. yep. And, and you hope that you hope that it doesn't take something like this to change the world again. Right. But absolutely. Um, but yeah, it has been, it has been a year been and a that's year. wild. It's wild. Um, <laughs> it's, it's been a crazy year. It, it's, it's been an absolutely crazy year. Um, podcast. I was going to ask you, do you miss podcasting? But I didn't know that you actually have a new podcast, you know, under the new work that you're doing with the Culture Vertical at The Athletic. Tell me more yeah, about so it. It's it's called Culture Calculus. Um, and it, we come out every week, usually on a Thursday. Um, and right now, you know, we're very new, but we've been trying to have a guest on every week. Last week we had um, we had Colin Allred, who's a congressman out of the 32nd district in Texas, right outside of, of Dallas. He's a former Tennessee Titan and, um, and was present for the insurrection. And it was this thing where, you know, he's a, he's an incredibly smart, a very thoughtful guy, but he is also a former linebacker. So he's also just a big dude. Yeah. And when a bunch <laughs> of like, <laughs> when a bunch of like, like domestic terrorists are storming the Capitol, 
a lot of Congress people are going to be like, well, I'm going to follow Colin because he's going to, you know, he's going to be the person to like literally like stand behind, um, which was, I mean, it was a great interview. He like, he's the issues that he's, he's working on right now are have to do with paid family leave, particularly parental leave and getting over the stigma of men taking paternity leave, you know, and, and, and sharing the, you know, the burden of, of, of parental work and, and of, of work at the home and all of that. Um, but so, yeah, so the show is, is every week and and we're also rotating in some exciting uh guests from the athletic because you know we've got this incredible newsroom of like incredibly thoughtful people for sure um and this week our episode is with a food writer named alicia kennedy about kind of the politics of food and veganism um and how that can be so based in class and you know um, and notions of, well, you can afford meat or, or what kind of meat you can afford and sustainability and whether like veganism is a white person thing or a hippie thing. And, um, you know, a lot of interesting things that we're talking about there. So we're really just trying to show kind of the range of what we can, of what we can do, um, with, with something like a culture vertical or, or a culture podcast. So yeah, we hope, we hope people tune in and like it and, uh, and we'll see where it goes. Absolutely. I'll certainly be tuning in as soon as we're done recording this episode. <laughs> I'm going to go subscribe and check it out uh, uh, on my ride around town, <laughs> wherever it is <laughs> that I go next. But um, lastly, so we started a segment since you've last been on this podcast, and I've called it the six man segment. Okay. And the reason why is because you always have people ask like, well, who's your top five in whatever respective category you want to ask them in? And I still want to ask you that. Um, but sometimes it's hard to just narrow some of those lists down to just five. So I'm giving you the option to have a six person tacked onto that list. But for you, Kavita, I want to know this. Who are your top five and a six man or, or six woman in this case, um, female sports figures of all time? And it doesn't just have to be athletes. It can be athletes, coaches execs, uh, sports media folks, uh, just anything connected to, to women in sports. Um, who is your top five and who is your sixth woman uh, that you would rank just off the top of your head? Because I know we didn't plan or prepare for this. One. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, <can> change. <laughs> I mean, immediately when you say that, I think of Serena, like Serena Williams, I think is just, is always going to be number one on that list just for what she, what she has done, what she has accomplished the sheer dominance that she has had the conversations that are still, and will continue to be going on about her and about, you know, not just womanhood, but black womanhood in a sport that has that in a sport that is tied to nobility and all kinds of like notions about, about etiquette and Victorian ideals and all kinds of like, frankly, colonial British bullshit. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah. So Serena is always number one in that. I But you you don't have a Serena without an Althea. So I think Althea has got to be really close okay. behind. Yeah. Um, I want to I always want to throw a, a woman in media in there. And I think that that woman for me would be Claire Smith because, you know, she's a Hall of Fame writer. She is a black woman covering baseball. Um, and and she has such a has such a dignity and such a just a regal presence, frankly, um, in in the industry. And and you don't you don't have a Kavitha without a you don't have a you don't have a Kavitha without a Claire. Like you yeah. don't have none of us are here without Claire Smith, you know? Absolutely. Um fourth, uh I'm I'm gonna go I'm I'm gonna go Kim Ng because I mean, it just took way too long for Kim Ng to become a general manager. We've been having this conversation for 20 years about, yeah. you know, when are when is Kim Ng going to finally like break through that? And then we thought it wasn't going to happen. And she's doing it and she's doing it as an Asian American woman. Um, and she's doing it, frankly, with like there was fanfare when this was announced. And then she just went to work. You know what I yeah. mean? Like she's not really she's not doing any media. Trust me, I've tried. <laughs> she's <laughs> yeah. not. She's but she is she is just. She is just sitting in her office um, and and going to baseball games and scouting and 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 just doing doing the work. And you know, I think that it's very interesting that um, Derek Jeter's greatest legacy might end up being what he did post retirement, and, yeah. and Kimming will be that legacy. So um, Kimming would be Kim Kim would be fourth. 
if we're going fifth, I mean, it's gotta be, it's gotta be a tie between Venus and Billie Jean. And because the two of them worked in tandem to achieve equal pay for, for tennis grand slams. And that is still pioneering. Like that is still something that we have not seen met in any other league or in any other sport for, um, for equal pay. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's Billy plus Venus for that issue alone. Um, you know, whenever you talk about Serena being at top, I think it's hard to separate Serena from Venus, but yeah, for sure. Um, Oh, six is, that's interesting. Take us somewhere we don't expect you, we, that we wouldn't expect you to. Just take us off the deep end here, Kavita. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know what? I think I think for six, I would go with um, with someone like a, like a Candace Parker, I think is where I would go with that. You know, okay. someone who like you see a very, a very clear post-retirement path for her. So she's yes. going to straddle that media and she is so good. Man, she's, she's so a talent. good at what she does. <laughs> Absolutely. And I don't know how, like how, you know, how, like when I say she is so good at what she does, that's not even what she does. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. She's really like, a hooper. She's really a hooper. <laughs> yeah. And she is one of the best that we have ever seen. Absolutely. And she, she is just going to be around for so long. She is going to continue to change and create access to women's basketball, to women's sports in general. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, like I, I, Candace Parker is just, Oh, like I love her so much. Um, <laughs> very much up there. And it listen, if I had a seventh, I mean, I have such immense respect for Pat Summit. Yeah. <laughs> May he rest in peace. Absolutely. Like just, you know, and that was it was incredibly like my formative years of seeing this woman coach incredibly dominant teams. Um, and and the coaching part of it, you know, like because women in sports are often told that we can't have that analytical mind about what happens on the court or like, you know, if we never played a sport, yeah, how can you talk about it? And that kind of thing. And, and Pat just obviously defied, defied all of that. Um, and is continuing and, 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 and not as continuing to do so in, in heaven she is, but, um, you know, so I, she would be seventh on there and then I could like, like we could go, we could go down the line right give now. Me a, <laughs> give me a 12 man roster in Kavita, why don't you? <laughs> For sure, Kavita. Well, well, I appreciate you greatly for joining us here. You did nothing but drop gems, which is to be expected. Um, continue doing the great work that you're doing um, and, and just promote whatever it is that you see fit. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I, I really I always appreciate the conversation. I appreciate you being in the book. And um, and, you know, I, I appreciate you even like just being interested in talking to me, which is a little bit wild. But thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Devon. <laughs> it's all good. On that note, we are going to leave y'all the only way that we know how. And that is to stay woke and go win. 